0: What's this war in the heart of nature? Why does nature vie with itself? The land contend with the sea.
1: Is there an avenging power in nature? Not one power, but two?
2: From the film, Thin Red Line. Is there a war in nature? Light and darkness? Life and death? Always at each other's throat in an eternal Manichaean dance? Meat sacks want to believe the world is a circle of life, when in reality it's the circle jerk of archons, endlessly taking those facials of denial. Look, Simba, I always want to take nature lovers and drop them in the middle of the Amazon or Sambisa jungle for a few days. Have them experience vicious predators, brutal weather, insects that crawl up the urethra to lay eggs in the bladder, and endless poisonous flora. Look, it, man. Let's see how hippy-dippy granola they are if they survive and come back. Gaia's vulva is a laboratory of pain and feeding. Mother Nature is a
1: serial killer. No one's better, more creative. Like all serial killers, she can't help the urge to want to get caught. What good are all those brilliant crimes if if no one takes the credit? So she leaves crumbs.
2: At the same time, though, divinity is trapped in nature and provides avenues to the transcendental. Two powers, how can this be? Another day, another defilement. It is, and how can so many people not see this? Those humans, like you and me, are part of the 1% of this planet. And they don't understand that their bourgeois parks and gardens are not nature, but rape, brutalize and oppress nature. And Gaia is always waiting to be unleashed and summon her predators and parasites. Lay some more eggs in your bladder. Two powers.
1: You're not in Kansas anymore. If there is a hell, you might want to go there for some R&R.
2: But you see, true gnosis, true ecstasy, is to be able to hold up the dark and light. The two powers in nature, at once, stand in the middle like a tough Tiferet and find your place in and beyond. To see the cosmos as it is, with fiery honesty, and the two natures within our souls.
0: Our Father, which art in heaven, stay there. And we shall stay on earth, which is sometimes so pretty.
2: This is part of the famous holding up of the Mysterium Tremendum, the mystery that repels, that which is dreadful, fearful, and overwhelming, and the mysterium fascinosum, the mystery that attracts, the glorious, beauty, redeeming, and numinous power of the cosmos. In other words, true gnosis, true ecstasy, is facing at once the horror and awe of the universe, and being and fine with it. That's what the ancient Gnostics and Hermetics did, despite all the misinformation out there on them, from both the Orthodox and occultists. That is part of Hermetic philosophy, and that's what we'll be discussing in this Eternal Now, here at A.M. By Gnostic Radio. Psychotic drones. Where the swims, you're drowning. I mean, The Corpus Hermeticum is not a kumbaya mystic money-shot. No, it's full of mentions of dark spirits and polemics against the body and the natural world. It holds up the awe and horror of the universe up at once. Same with the Christian Gnostic Gospels. These texts and their attitude were once part of an eldritch and holistic wisdom of the ancients, you see and we've lost so much of that and we need to regain it in these Gnostic times in Philip K Dick world or we're done our collective sanity is done the divinity trapped in nature will be forever buried in it along with the despised
0: philosopher Stone all these robots walking around feeling nothing thinking nothing and they'll be Nobody left almost to remind them that there once was a species called a human being with feelings and thoughts And that history and memory are right now being erased and soon nobody will really remember that life existed on the planet
2: We desperately need that hermetic philosophy That has been one of the themes of Aeon Byte and certainly has been one for our astral guest, Tobias Churton who materializes at the virtual Alexandria to discuss his latest book, The Lost Pillars of Enoch, when science and religion were one.
1: Witness the wonders of an ancient glory.
0: Careful, Chief. You dig up the past. All you get is dirty.
2: As you shall see, Hermes is everywhere, and he's been so many individuals and characters throughout history. Because he is the god of the mind, of transitions and doorways, of art and magic, of reason and inspiration. Tobias will proffer this and much more in another excellent discussion, as well as Hermes and his battle against the Archons and Heaven itself. And yes, you'll get dope on the Nephilim and Enoch and Renaissance magicians and John Dee and William Blake and more where Hermes manifests to provide Gnosis, that true ecstasy, that taking within your breast the horror and awe of the universe and playing a trick or two on the Demiurge and his butt-slaves in the cosmic and material establishment.
1: By the power of truth, I, while living, have conquered the universe.
0: Personal motto?
1: From Faust.
0: That's about trying to cheat the devil, isn't it?
2: I don't know if I, your host Miguel Connor, is a manifestation of Hermes, but I know you can be, as well as a manifestation of Sophia. That is within you. That is your birthright. That is your greatest
0: victory. If the body shells the soul, and the soul is divine grind, then God is earth, God is us, God is all around.
2: Another misconception about the Gnostics and Hermetics was on their ideas on sin. Let me explain. No,
0: there is too much. Let me sum up.
2: The word for sin in ancient Greek is hamartia, which basically means missing the mark, as in the context of an archer not hitting his target. It also meant in ancient times a character defect, like Oedipus being stubbornly ambitious or Hamlet being too broodingly speculative. In the Gnostic text, Hamartia is programmed by the Archons before we are born and then ignited by the Arch Archon Fate to make sure we never wake up. Fate is a joke. And as I once read on a wall in a truck stop bathroom in Barstow, The joke is in your hands. (laughs) Oh my god, I just got that. Only the transformative revelation of a messenger of light and ecstatic rituals could break our harmartia. Or the understanding of our sacred duty written in our divine spark by the Pleroma long before the cosmic cataclysm. To avoid sin in life, too... The Gnostics took a simple approach. As the Gospel of Thomas says, Do not tell lies, and do not do what you hate. For all things are plain in the sight of heaven. For nothing hidden will not become manifest, and nothing covered will remain without being uncovered.
0: I'm going to show you a world without sin.
2: Simply put, be authentic, brutally honest with yourself, ...and know your specific destiny. Jung said we didn't come to this world to be good... ...but to be whole. And as James True said about the Black Iron Prison... ...this is not a battle of good versus evil. This is a battle of you against the lack of you.
0: I know who I am. After all these years, there's a... ...there's a victory in that.
2: Furthermore... The Gospel of Philip states, Ignorance is the mother of all evil. This means that not seeing nature as it is, not seeing yourself as you really are and what you can be, is the worst blasphemy you can commit, and brings more evil and suffering into the world. Lastly, consider the words of Joseph Campbell. He said, one problem with Yahweh, as they used to say in the old Christian Gnostic texts, is that he forgot he was a metaphor. He thought he was a fact. And when he said, I am God, a voice was heard to say, you are mistaken, Samael. Samael means blind God, blind to the infinite light of which he is a local historical manifestation. This is known as the blasphemy of Jehovah, that he thought he was God. You cannot play God, then wash your hands of the things that you've
0: created. Sooner or later, the day comes when you can't hide from the things that you've done anymore.
2: Don't be like Yaldi Baldi. Don't forget where you came from. Don't forget you are a metaphor for something greater, as is nature and society. You are an ongoing story with purpose, just part of the many Hermeses out there, integrating the horror and awe of the universe. And as a trickster being like Hermes and Sophia, don't take yourself too seriously, unless something hatches eggs in your bladder. Let us to our interview with Tobias Churton.
0: are innocent. Why should they suffer? Why should children suffer? Will you tell me that? Why should any baby have to suffer and die?
1: Why should men?
0: Oh, come on now. Don't try that one on me. You've got answers for it. Why like pain makes people noble. And how could man be more than a talking tennis playing pender bear if it weren't at least for the possibility of suffering? But what about animals, hud? Does pain make turkeys noble? Why is all of creation based on dog eat dog, and the little fish are eaten by the big fish? Animals screaming in pain. All of creation an open wound, a fucking slaughterhouse. We've talked about that. Not enough! We said original sin might be the cause. Maybe God can't interfere in our affairs. So I've noticed. Maybe he can't, because to do so would spoil his plan for the future. Some evolution of
2: man and the world so unthinkably beautiful that it's worth all the pain of every
1: suffering thing that ever lived.
2: This is the Aeon Byte interview. And with us, as always, we have the pleasure of having at the virtual Alexandria, as I call it, Tobias Churton to discuss his new book, The Lost Pillars of Enoch. When science and religion were one. Tobias, thanks for coming back on and how are you doing? Although, again, we've been asking each <laughs> other that a while and getting very non philosophical, I suppose.
1: <laughs> I, th- I, th- I think, I think we're, we're all concentrated on getting through this thing <laughs> and uh, uh, dreaming of what that might be like. You know, so yeah, uh, it, it, but I'm all right at the moment. We've had some flooding here, by the way, we, in our area. Climate change um, is certainly has changed. And uh, is, what with that and the other plagues, it, it, The Lost Pillars of Enoch does sound like an appropriate book because these were supposedly erected as a, a way of memorising the culture that existed before the Great Flood, which wiped out, according to the myth of Noah, everything but Noah and his, uh, his beast. So the, we do live in these... Um, these seem to be very sharply apocalyptic times. How much of that is you can attribute to media, um, cinema, films, Armageddon, consciousness, endless apocalyptic? And how much is it, any truth in it is, is something we can debate.
2: Oh, most certainly. Most certainly. These are interesting times. I don't know if I ever want to go back to any sort of old normal. I'd like to see (laughs) what's on the other side and hopefully it's something better or at least more interesting.
1: Well, there's no doubt that crises do bring out um, remarkable innovation qualities and realization. And very often, it's not until a person's on their knees that they face up to who they are.
2: That is true. We must be tested. And with us, we also are delighted to having Vance the Moondog. Vance. how you doing?
1: Great, Miguel. And I'm looking forward to an interview with the illustrious Tobias Turton
2: Tobias mentioned flooding. It is, uh, as you talk about in your book, which, as you mentioned, deals with antediluvian times, the this lost knowledge, but, uh, you yourself had a flood early in 2020, right? Your house got flooded right before the other things happened.
1: Yes. So, and that was um, uh, awfully remarkable because it was a very odd feeling the night before it, it happened at two o'clock in the morning. We had to, we were made homeless, uh, and a terrible storm going on and but before it had happened before we went to bed, I remember saying to to my wife that I felt a very dark thing coming and it felt like a sort of judgment of God very odd and and that was before the covid thing had really hit. that was a few weeks before it had become a critical issue. I was in February last year. so yes, it's been certainly um Normally, people dream of an apocalypse. We've had we've had a sort of taste of it, haven't we? <laughs> I, I certainly felt I had. I, it, it woke me up in quite a lot of different ways. And then to write the book uh, in the in the aftermath of that. Uh, oh, I don't think no no. It was, it was more a question not writing the book. It was a question of editing the book afterwards. It did seem uh, it did seem poignant, to say the least. Very poignant and. and and critical and uh, it brought it home for sure it took it out of the mythic realm and into your personal emotional private vulnerability so the book ended up being almost a testimony um, and what what it's saying uh, is seems to me be something that's possibly unfolding
2: as Gershom Sholem called the Kabbalah, the revenge of the myth on its detractor. So there was some revenge of this myth. <laughs> and how did uh, you decide to uh, write this book?
1: That's a very good question in itself, because I can't remember what got me into it. Uh, it that's a very good, I really, you know, I can't remember what what led led to it. Uh Normally one book sort of leads to another um, in a strange way. You know, you you uncover things in the process of writing one book, you realise you could do a lot more with. With this book, The Lost Pillars of Enoch, uh, it, it seems, while I think it's a kind of summary of all my previous work in a way, I found a kind of image and a metaphor for the whole investigation into ancient knowledge and spiritual knowledge and its survival. Um, I'm, I can't remember what suddenly made me think. Oh, yeah, there was some talk about doing a book about Hermetic philosophy, um, specifically, and I knew that I wanted to talk about um, Enoch because, yeah, that was what really led. Yeah, I remember now. It's um, I was contacted by Professor. Boccacini from the University of Michigan, to, to would I contribute to a global scholarly seminar on the Book of Enoch? And I he wanted me to write about Freemasonry and the Book of Enoch, um, which I was willing to do, though I didn't particularly want to do it because I said, well, actually, there's very little contact that I can discern between Masonry and the Book of Enoch. Between Enoch as a figure, yes, but the Book of Enoch doesn't occur in any um in any masonic traditions uh, directly at all i know some people think uh, the ancient and accepted rite and the royal arch of enoch as it's known in america might have uh, had access to the book of enoch but i it didn't need to have the the myth the mythology w- was already there and anyway it's very late the ancient and accepted rite so i wrote i i wrote a paper to deliver to the florence italy florence seminar uh Year before last, and in writing that, I uncovered a great deal about Enoch, which amazed me really. And uh, then there is no direct link between the book of Enoch and this idea of the pillars of Enoch that grew up uh, fascinatingly within a period of two to two to six, seven hundred years. Um, the linking of the name Enoch to the pillars. Josephus writes about pillars erected by the sons of Seth. Um, We know about the Sethian strain or or, or race uh, from the book of Genesis. They were regarded as the pure race who descended directly from Adam through his third son. Whereas the sons of Cain are regarded as the impure race and, and closely associated mythologically with the Nephilim, this idea of the fallen angels, um, which is a mixed myth. If you wanna talk about it, we can. Um, But these pillars, Josephus tells the story of these two pillars erected, one to withstand a judgment of fire, and another one to withstand a judgment of water on which the sons of Seth wrote all their astronomical and scientific knowledge, lest it be destroyed in a conflagration which Adam predicted God was going to send upon humanity. And we know that from the biblical flood story. So you had this idea that God would destroy the world either by fire or by water. And according to the story, of course, it turned out to be water, so there was one left. And Josephus says in his history, uh, is his history, The Antiquities of the Jews, he says that one of the pillars was still standing in the Syriadic land, the Syriadic land, which in the English translation of William Whiston was mistakenly uh, translated as Syria, Uh, that Syriadic meant was a a, a variant of Syria. And that led to speculation uh, very quickly that it was uh, various inscriptions in Lebanon or perhaps one in Turkey. Uh, But in fact, Syriadic is 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 a phrase which has interesting literary Pedigree and refers quite specifically to the worshippers of Sirius, you know, the Dog Star, and the Dog Star, of course, was fundamental to the life of Egypt. So I trace all this and come to the something not quite a conclusion, but uh, uh, I try to trace where this lost pill- uh, surviving pillar might actually have been when Joseph was was alive, what he was referring to, and. I'd say all roads point to Egypt which is fascinating again because this idea of an Egyptian myth of pillars with the great knowledge written on we normally associate with the figure of Hermes Trismegistus and the reference to his his recording the the most profound knowledge on tablets which were kept in a royal library somewhere in in Egypt and that's the basis of a lot of myths in itself so what's interesting is you have A Jewish story, a Hebrew story, eventually the name Enoch becomes associated with these pillars. Uh, The first time we we get a sense of that is is in the 500s, but it may have been long before. But it's not surprising Enoch's chosen because Enoch is constantly conflated in the late antiquity with Hermes, Enoch Hermes, two uh, progenitors, patriarchs of profound knowledge. Now, whether that knowledge is purely mathematical, mechanical, scientific in a modern sense or as the Gnostics, the Sethians uh, themselves suggested that these pillars contained the ancient knowledge of man's spiritual being. But this is why we talk about religion and science being one at some point, because, in fact, in the ancient world, there really isn't isn't a a categorical difference. Um, between spiritual and material knowledge. They they were interplayed all the time. The great spiritual leaders were thought to tell you how the universe worked. Um, and the universe could be um, analysed as in terms of engineering, mathematics, geometry, or it could be thought of in terms of Enoch, uh, the Metatron, the archangel governing the universe like, like a celestial computer. So all these issues are raised up in this thing about the pillars of Enoch. Um, and it has this sense of destiny about it. These pillars are poised to stand against the destruction of all man 's achievements and that image carries through for two thousand years and uh, that fascinated me that the, it, it creates the myth that the of the antediluvian knowledge that before the flood man knew all that was worth knowing, as it were, the the sons of Seth. And uh, that myth of antediluvian knowledge becomes a vital part of the rescue of of Europe and the Western world from the Dark Ages. And the figure of Enoch then becomes important in in all sorts of ways, and eventually became important in Freemasonry, and uh, as did Hermes. And uh, they had been identified as... The same by Roger Bacon in the thirteenth century, and that became a, and in the Arabic world, and that became a tradition. So the book traces this whole impact of this story, this myth, this image of the pillars of wisdom, uh, with the knowledge that was lost but can be regained. And I, there's a whole long um, treatment of Isaac Newton, who believed firmly that everything he was credited with discovering was in fact a rediscovery of what had been known. In the pre-flood civilization, which he imagined to have existed, and which of course theosophists today imagine, and uh, that is a a vital part of the esoteric Western tradition, is this idea that there was civilization before the Sumerians, before the Egyptians, um, in which uh, integrated. I mean, it's the whole Graham Hancock, Robert Bovall, dream. So the book encompasses all of that. And uh and, and, and wraps it up and I as as is my want, I present the facts as I've been able to uh, discover them and uh, without overmuch speculation, but keep keeping to the keeping to the historical record.
2: Yeah, you do uh, an incredible job uh, connecting Hermes and Enoch and how they manifest throughout history and how their spirit manifests throughout history, an important thing. So we want to sort of uh, touch on these and uh, back up a little bit. As you said, the Egyptians saw Hermes having his own flood story. Hermes saw his own flood story and pillars, but uh, even earlier than the Muslims, uh, wasn't Zosimos the alchemist uh, an individual who connected Hermes and Enoch?
1: Yeah, very, yes, he did. I don't know how, um, yes, in the letters uh, that he wrote to Theo Sabaya, a woman alchemist, holy woman by all accounts, a saintly woman. Um, I've been doing quite a lot of work on Zosimos recently. Zosimus of Panopolis, the Egyptian alchemist uh, from present-day Akmim in Egypt. Still, by the way, a center of dying. Uh, dying, I don't mean living and dying. I mean dying uh, um, cloths.
2: And, uh, okay.
1: <laughs> well, I think, I think I'm thinking of a book on Zosimos and the early alchemists because I think there's been a great misunderstanding what he's writing about in terms of gold which he says was knowledge he quotes from the book of Enoch he says this knowledge of dying and gold metals and turning metals gold colored was knowledge that was brought by the Nephilim uh, the angels who fell from heaven and that it was it was uh, dangerous knowledge and that's why he writes to Sabiah that they you know, the processes of alchemy must be kept strictly secret because this is knowledge that in the wrong hands could cause catastrophe because it comes from a dimension beyond the possibilities of most uninitiated human beings. And he's writing this in around 300 AD, about 300 AD. So that's about, you know, 260 plus years after the crucifixion. So it's the late, late Roman Empire. And um, uh, of course, he, he yes, he he seems to recognise that Enoch is a form, uh, a Hebrew form of Thoth, uh, Thoth Hermes. Uh, but he's I don't think he's I don't remember him being particularly explicit about that they are definitely the same person. But he's aware that there there is a Jewish Hebrew myth of. Uh, this knowledge coming to mankind, and that it's also preserved in the writings, sacred writings of Hermes. So he's the first person to link an Enochian tradition, uh, or Enochic, as scholars prefer to call it, to distinguish it from John Dee's angelic language. Um, he's 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 the first to make this explicit link between Enoch, Thoth, and the knowledge. And it's fascinating that that connection is made in the context of practical alchemy, or practical and spiritual alchemy. What was alchemy about? You know, what's it it about? It's it's about it's about exercising knowledge, which is fundamentally deceptive. Um, From one point of view, if you dye a product uh, and you make it a different colour to its natural colour you are doing a cosmetic job. You are going beyond its natural state and imposing on it uh, an image which creates an impression. Take the famous purple dye of the Roman emperors. Somebody dressed in purple, and only the emperor uh, an imperial power was associated with purple could wear this dye. So... In terms of Genesis and the, and the strict Puritanical Jewish tradition, all of these interferences with the natural process, however glittering they may be, were associated with something we'd now call in the rare, uh, words like satanic from the Protestant tradition. So that's why Zosimus of Panopolis says that these alchemical secrets were brought to earth from a higher realm, by mischievous angelic creatures. And uh, you have the same myth or either, I think, the source of the Gnostic myth of the Archons is based, I personally believe, on consideration of the Book of Enoch story of the Watchers, the Heavenly Watchers, who come to earth and mess things up. And I also believe, I'll go right out on a limb here, and I say my my personal belief is that Jesus's anti-demonic ministry of casting demons out is based on the same mythology that the world was infected by demonic powers from another dimension. And therefore, part of the cleanup and the end story of, 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 of the prophetic history of the Hebrew people who represent in a way humanity uh, is this clearing up of the watches. So with all of that going on, it's very interesting. Some people think Zosimus was, was a Christian. And it would make sense that he had such, you know, this knowledge that he has of the book of Enoch, um, which as you know, of course, was a canonical book in the Ethiopic church, which was meant to be the first, kingdom ever to become christian uh, but fell out of favor very quickly with both jewish authorities and christian authorities because they couldn't find this this story uh, clearly enough in the book of genesis to justify that the book of enoch should be believed and um, even though the epistle of judas or as it's commonly known jude in the new testament refers directly to the book of enoch
2: exactly yeah
1: fascinating stuff i mean really i mean you don't learn the stuff at sunday school do you
2: <laughs> no <laughs> and i think yeah i think you're you're right about jesus i mean the secret book of john does have the uh, nephilim story i guess they just i mean it just replaces the nephilim watches with the archons but uh, it does have it blow by blow towards the end but that's an interesting question you bring up is, uh, you in these myths, you have these alien beings, whether it's the watchers or Prometheus or the coyote over and over who bring these gifts of magic and makeup and science and all that. But it seems many of these gifts uh it's a two-edged sword and to some it's just bad i mean jews and christians just thought no what the nephilim were bringing was not good makeup and all that stuff
1: <laughs> yeah and doesn't it tie in strangely to the experience of the aztecs uh dealing with cortez
2: yeah, oh yeah yeah Quart- Quetzalcoatl brought uh gifts to humanity or teachings
1: yeah, no, it's this idea that's from, as I put it in a poem when I was 15, for from afar came men who came to dull the light that shines this land or whatever it was. I can't remember the exact words of the poem. But there is this basic mythology that is in the in our unconscious that when damage comes to a country, it always comes from without. You know, that the corrupting force comes from without or in this in these mythological terms comes from above. Uh, and, of course, salvation also comes from without and above. But there is this whole thing in the Gnostic tradition that, that, that in fact, these things come from within and that salvation also from within and that we should not look outward you know, for either salvation or the source of the, the terrors, uh, but within you know, this is, this is, it's all very, very fascinating. You know, you can easily get lost in cross-cultural references. The Australian Aborigines believe that they, they themselves, their ancestors came from uh, out of this world, from, uh, from another world beyond this one. And obviously that plays into the whole ancient aliens, uh, neo-mythology that we now have. Because since uh, George Damsky and the Blue Book and the 50s and, and the nuclear age, we have the idea of an advanced civilization coming from elsewhere. And I know it's not just post-war; I mean, you elements of it in in uh, early, early, early um, science fiction writing. If we go back to the Jules Verne period, there's still this fundamental myth that there's an a, a alien that any higher intelligence literally must come from higher up you know my own view of course <laughs> is that my own view is the higher up is in fact the the crown of your own head as the as the jnana yogis have it um our access to the infinite worlds uh, is is if you're into janana yoga is, is is the gateway of brahma is in the the crown of the skull and that's where the great power enters us and of course in the book of Enoch, you have that's also the explanation for the evil that we have in the world. And I, as I say, I think do think the Gnostics um, is the Gnostic, the particularly the Gnosticism which m- most arrests our attention, which is less Platonic and more cataclysmic, or as I call it, cosmoclastic, more destructive of the fundamental nature of the universe, is that the the evil uh, com- comes from uh, higher dimension it's not just a question of our acts that condemn us there's some sort of evil inherent in uh, the nature of things and that as Hans Jonas the great philosopher of Gnosis said you know that was what was so shocking about the Gnostics because they're the first to posit uh, a, a feeling of discomfort about our being in this world at all and I know from our previous conversations Miguel that you 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 tend to to take that as as read,
2: yeah, I would say so, and uh even reading uh the more I read Jung, the more I realize he also believed in ontological evil, especially with the the black books that have come out, so I feel somewhat redeemed, but what i believe <laughs> what I believe is neither here nor there, it's just <laughs> the way I see it, but actually, this brings me to you brought up Hans Jonas, and I earlier brought Gershom Scholem. And in your books, you always have an incredible anecdote, I feel. So on a little uh, side subject, you write how uh, Hans Jonas, I believe in the late 90s, when you talked to him, and I'm very envious, he late told 80s,
1: you... Late
2: 80s. Uh, late 80s, I'm sorry.
1: Oh, air, <laughs> yeah. you know now.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he told you that... Uh, he got into an argument. Uh, Jonas got into an argument with uh, Gershom Sholem because uh, Jonas mentioned that the Gnostics might have been original, originally Jews who believed there was uh, the, the the dreaded two god theory, and one of the gods was evil. That was so interesting, especially because Sholem was so you know into Kabbalah being Jewish Gnosticism, and there's so you know divinity is so fragmented in the Kabbalah sometimes.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating that, isn't it? I mean, um, Sholem wanted to make a a case for Kabbalah to educated Jews to appreciate that it wasn't a crazy and dangerous belief system which had come out of the Haskalah, the the Jewish Enlightenment, which was that these sort of beliefs um, had motivated uh, foolish social movements like sabbatidessvi and um, oh, uh, Jakb Frank
2: right.
1: uh, in Poland and and they were very nervous about Kabbalah also because Kabbalah had united Christians and Jews also um, it had become a, a medium of communication and understanding between a, 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 some educated Jews and some educated Christians and that was also regarded as, as, as a dubious, Uh, uh, element of the tradition. So Sherlin was very nervous that Kabbalah could uh, fall into the uh, category of heresy, whereas um, Jonas had no axe to grind about heresy. He didn't really believe in Orthodox Judaism any more than he believed in Orthodox anything. He's highly influenced by Martin Heidegger. And what we now call existentialism, and he just regarded religion very much as a phenomenon of, of human existence rather than an overarching guide of how to live as such, you know, which was infallible. Scholem Sh- wanted to wanted to make a, a strong case for Kabbalah, and so Jonas, reflecting on the trauma that must have taken place after not only after the destruction of the temple in AD 70, but the destruction of the bar Kokhba rebellion uh, of 135-138, and the destruction of Masada, and the Emperor Hadrians kicking the Jews out of Jerusalem altogether. He, he associated that trauma, and of course he was thinking about this in the period of Hitler's persecution of Jews, uh, that it would have made some people some people question whether they're the could the judge of earth do right, you know, which is the great question of parts of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, Book of Job. Can God be trusted to to deal with the world fairly? And he thought that this issue of the nature of God's justice was really only a Jewish issue; that it was only really something that would come to a Jew who had seen every promise broken and the Jews, kicked instead of redeemed in the first century by an apocalyptic change, but actually seen them uh, wiped out of their own holy city. And so for him, it was credible that, that, that this was a product of perhaps wayward Jewish speculation based on existing speculations of which the book of Enoch, which is still an embarrassment to Christians and Jews in many ways, um, could have have precipitated, you know. But in fact, if you follow it, you realize that all this was, was built into the logic of apocalyptic in the first place. From the moment Jewish writers started presuming to predict how the world would end and how God's justice might be enacted finally, from that moment, you open up not only a can of worms, but as it were, a can of angels. Uh, <laughs>
2: you know, and, and of archons too, <laughs>
1: and of archons, and they all come flying out. You know, and and you can easily make a case that Jesus's ministry is part of this movement, not not above it, not below it, not a sideline, but very much part of it. It's. You know, in Jesus' report, my kingdom is not of this world in, in the Gospel of John. My kingdom is not of this world. Or the prince of this world, this whole phrase of the idea that the world is governed by an evil power. And that ultimately, it is that only by the defeat of the evil power itself can the world be redeemed. You know, this, this sets the stage of the religious mania of the last 2,000 years, which is totally unresolved. Um as I see it uh you know scientism has come along say well we can just avoid all those questions by following Wittgenstein the world is everything that is the case in other words the world is as it appears to be and it's absurd to speculate much further on that We, we must deal with the most practical means of existing and uh you know that's that's and positivism, which says some um, pretty similar idea that we just don't need all these religious questions anymore because we don't believe in angels and gods or anything. And uh, and yet the world is still being presented as a dangerous place with a kind of hidden agenda of its own, and and that somehow if we all stop driving petrol-driven cars, we can offset uh, climate change and all the rest of it. I mean, these are, to me these are all vital questions the human being is still stuck uh in some ways in the same dilemmas as our as our ancestors
2: oh yeah i would say
1: so i do do suggest some solutions in my book by the way for those for those who feel that the the world is doom laden enough i certainly don't want to add to it i always (laughs) made a point you know when i wrote my songs of not writing you know doom laden songs because pe- the last thing people need, even if it is doomed, the last thing you need is doom-laden material. And I always, tr- you know, um, crucify myself to find uh, something profoundly positive and, um, and true, and true, uh, to say. So the, the, the climax of the book is actually a vision of, of a, a very optimistic possibility that does exist. Today.
2: I agree. Uh, for the audience, definitely check it out. I am not going to give spoilers. It's a inspirational ending. I think Tobias always brings a lot of uh, positive gnosis in all of his books. And uh, it's great. And it's interesting, Tobias, because even uh, you're talking about Jesus and his movement, which was really part of the the anti-archon. But I don't know why Christians would even question that. I mean, if you open your eyes and read Paul, all he's talking about is how the world is ruled by archons and the God of this world and the powers and principle. And Jesus came down to basically fight these entities yes. that had yes, taken yes, over.
1: Yes, yes. And the crucifixion is, is, is the trap. You know, he uses the word. Exactly. That the, wood, the wood of the cross becomes, I mean, you're thinking like, a bit like a mousetrap. Um, he's thinking of a mechanical means of, of, of finishing the devil off. And he, he uses the word that you know, Christ has to be basically crucified in order to, because it had been planned from the very beginning, from the very beginnings, that this, this evil, fundamental spiritual evil, could be finished by an act that the devil, Satanas, could never have expected, namely that God would give his son on the cross and that the attempt to destroy his fundamental existence on the cross fails and that that is the kind of that's the judgment eventually on in in terms of the book of Enoch Azazel the leader of these wayward demons who've been according to the book of Enoch where they were imprisoned in the earth and that's another interesting idea the Hebrew idea of the first Jewish idea of the first century that the gods of other countries were in fact these rebel angels that they other countries worship they couldn't see um, the transcendent deity of Javeh so they—they they in fact had, were worshipping demons, and that was the Jewish and Josephus's view of Egypt. Of course, that all—all the, all the great Egyptian gods, for all their knowledge, for all their fancy architecture, for all their hieroglyphics and their priests, and, and for all their alchemy and all the rest of it—that they were still, as far as Jews were concerned, worshipping these the, what we would call, call the nephilim, the fallen, the fallen ones, whoever they may originally. However, what that word may originally have meant, and uh, yeah, I mean you're absolutely right. I mean Christianity is a Gnostic religion, uh, if you if you really get it. And Paul knew that, but he said he wasn't something he could sell to the majority. He said, "I I give milk for the you know the children of the faith, and but the the real stuff is for those who've reached the gnosis or a uh, knowledge." But he was also aware that there was a problem with the knowledge idea because told to the ordinary bod who hadn't really understood it, it becomes a kind of a reason to, as he says, puff them up. and They think they know it all. This is true. <laughs> yeah. you, know, it's like, you know, the same thing happened with communism, which appears to be an answer to human problems. Uh, when the, the average uh, uh, shallow mentality gets in contact with the Marxist explanation for social conflict, oh, it's all about, you know, uh, distribution of wealth and, and the class struggle and all that and they get this idea in their head they immediately become fanatical and the the idea instead of being a liberating or useful tool becomes you know an iconoclastic thing we must destroy the enemy same with all the religions we have the the world is full of these new zealots oh my god we we, we, (laughs) we can't move for the damn people you know They have, they know what's right and wrong about everything. They, you know, they could have worked, and if only they'd been there in the American Civil War, they could have stopped this and done that and everything else, and they know it all. And, uh, uh, the Gnostic challenge is, of course, if you don't have spiritual knowledge, you only have merely a superficial smattering of understanding, then you're a dangerous person. And I think Paul recognized that, and he was in under no compunction to give the the highest level of the religion that he personally must have embraced uh, to his ordinary followers. Most of them, they were only just out of prison anyway and or out of whorehouses or out of the docks of Corinth. You know, his original, largest original following were uneducated people and he had to give them a sense of that this redemption meant that they were redeemed from the horror of a a meaningless death as a slave
2: and it's interesting too uh i don't know if you've heard this but john lennon also said that the gnostics were the true christians
1: well that's the quote from it's in skywriting by word of mouth and i I, I quoted that in my gnostics book back in 86 Mm -hmm. and uh you know i'm sorry that that yoko didn't make more of that because she was aware of it too Uh, but i suppose she also is aware that if you Trumpet these things to the masses, as it were, in the marketplace. They very soon become they they work back on you. I mean, John Lennon already had had the experience of saying a perfectly valid criticism of Western culture in '66, and then finding in Alabama they were burning Beatles <laughs> yeah. records. <as> well.
2: <laughs> we're more yeah. popular than Jesus. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, you know, and and it, he was right because Jesus was when was Jesus popular? For goodness' sake, crucifying, him, crucifying him, was his first. <laughs>
2: <That's> true. <laughs> you
1: know. It was Hosanna here comes the son of David on one day, and a few days later it's crucified crucified you know Jesus no the, the religion that Jesus taught is too difficult for most people, and they they, they like the idea of the salvation you know that's okay, you know fear of death and okay, but in between you know I'll kind of go, hey Jesus, can we make a deal you know <laughs> put it's put over very well in the film all that jazz in in 1980, about 1980 was it seventy nine eighty you know is that can we can we negotiate and the church <laughs> we've been negotiating our salvation for 2000 years you know we think god will let us off this or whatever it is in other words we're not really sure whether they're going to be saved or not but you know it's good insurance and the alternative is worse and all that so yeah you know, um as yeah, Lennon's
2: saying uh, the way things are going they're going to crucify me
1: yeah, and and everybody else, he didn't just meet himself. He, he is is he and he was very explicit in that period 69. The sixty nine was the the cusp of it, uh, the 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 climax where he, I mean, he obviously had gone through some sort of gnostic experience in sixty eight because he told his friend Pete Shotton that he was Christ and he wanted it announced to the Apple staff. And uh, this was announced in a board meeting of the Apple management. And I think it was Peter Brown. It may not have been Peter Brown, but he was pretty high. He said, that's a very important announcement, John. I think we all need to think about it very deep. (laughs)
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: In other words, okay, uh, let's not, let's not put that out. (laughs) (laughs) Because of course, John was going through, uh, he was going through a Gnostic crisis. I, I would say in that period. And, he, it became very clear in the interviews that he was giving a uh, famous one with David Whig in 1969. He said, you know, he talked about that people were at war with a power that was only manifest as political opposition, Nixon or whatever it was, you know, the government, uh, Harold Wilson in England. He said the, the power behind that is the issue. And he's very clear that the, he thought that the Beatles could uh, garner and focus uh, a spiritual power uh, to, to deal with this sort of worldly destructive a- anti-spiritual power. And the effort of that seems to have been in, I mean, it, it, it is one plausible explanation for the tensions that, that split the Beatles up is this whole problem of the material and the spiritual. George Harrison wanted the Beatles to be a kind of grail, an emblem of divine consciousness. John Lennon had a similar idea that it was more realistically politicized. Paul wasn't so keen on that interpretation of the Beatles clearly. I mean, I'm being simplistic here. They were talking about thoughts that they had and so on. But um, I'm fascinated that people have spent the last 50 years debating why the Beatles split up. And that it still exercises us in the way of a f- profound myth. Now, in 71, Lennon said, you know, what's all the fuss about? It's just a rock group that's split up. Yeah. Uh, but yes, he, you know, what he's trying to do is they say, "Can we? I want to draw a line under all that now and start again. And, and the way forward is through, through a kind of psychic political change. And you, you're just going to have to do it without the Beatles. You, you're going to have to do it by yourselves. Um, but the Christ identification there is very strong, isn't it? I mean, he's clearly saying, you know, like Jesus leaving the earth, you know, as in the story of the ascension, that the Beatles kind of ascended to a, to a, a non-spatial place where they continue to exercise this kind of invisible positivity. Um, you know, bit, you've almost got the Beatles are almost on the right hand of God to the determined, you know, uh, de- to the determined fan. Um, and of course, by because John Lennon was so close to the spiritual issues involved in the phenomenon of the Beatles, you end up, of course, with a Mark Chapman who is going to have to play the part of Judas. You know, it's almost becomes inevitable that some nutcase is going to see himself in the, the role of the, you know, some sort of um, doom to this thing. I, I watched a brilliant new version of Jesus Christ Superstar put on in New York a year or two ago for CBS, I think. And they, I mean, I, 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 it was always a very impressive show, the Superstar thing, but they'd done it in a kind of urban setting with a leading black cast god it was powerful it was oh
2: wow amazing. i love jesus christ superstar have, you
1: seen, it? have yeah. you seen that particular version
2: no i've seen the obviously the one with uh the lead singer of deep purple doing the voice uh the original one
1: this one had alice cooper as herod antipas
2: oh yes i have seen it yes he's uh, he's wonderful yeah it's a great uh, it's a great version
1: I, th- I thought that you know, there's a lot. There are hints of the Gnostic uh, aspect of the story there, aren't there? You know.
2: Oh yeah, very much. Judas and Mary Magdalene.
1: Well, you have to have this Judas character, you know. The, mm-hmm. You know, I wrote a book on the Gospel of Judas. There's always one, you know, wherever, wherever. You, it's a, it's it's a mythic essential that there is the betrayer of the dream. You know, this seems to go with uh, with the the fateful character of our human civilization but we know all this now so why can't we change it well you you tell me Miguel
2: (laughs) (laughs) that's what I've been trying to figure out for all these years on AM Byte I think uh, I think you said it uh, very well we have to look inward Uh, for some reason I keep repeating Peter Gabriel in Genesis and carpet crawlers—you got to get in to get out, but uh, we can't do that in a culture that's always projecting and blaming and uh, wanting more material needs. Uh, I think Lenin, Jung, the Gnostics, the Hermetics would have said, "No, stop, go inward, my son."
1: Yes, you go in to come out. Yeah, absolutely. And uh,
2: the kingdom you, of God is within you. Simple as that. <laughs>
1: but you can't. Um, These are spiritual realizations, and they don't come to everybody at the same time. Uh, They don't come to people automatically, and they cannot be taught directly. We can use all this language, but to somebody who is fundamentally unsympathetic, no matter what you said or I said, it won't make any difference. They will be determined, oh, well, that's a load of crap, you know. I don't need all that stuff. Um, I want, I, I know what I want. I know how to get it. And, uh, you know, I don't owe anything to anybody else. And I don't have to believe you in any way. I don't understand what you're talking about because I don't see any spirits. I see no angels. I see no gods. You know, I don't, I don't see anything in myself other than, you know, a, a, an individual with instincts and powers, um, which are, you know, and all of that, I, you know, the vulgarity, you know, the I think what, um, Ernest Becker called the anal sadist, who's only happy when he's scrudging around at the lowest level of reality. Yeah. <laughs> that is a lot of people. And the Gnostics have a very neat way of saying it. They say, as you know, we have the hillock type with the materialist who sees nothing but that which the senses immediately present him with. That's the hillock type. And um, we have the psychic who's a bit soulful, mindful, thoughtful, but doesn't grasp the bigger picture and then you have the pneumatic but the pneumatic or pneumatic message is simply not audible to the psychic or only very dimly and certainly inaudible to the uh, to the hillock or materialist unfortunately modern capitalism favors the hillock what you have what you own i mean mine as george Harrison, bless him said profoundly uh you know, you know, it obliterates eternity. There's no, there's no place for a spiritual vision there. So we find ourselves constantly uh, preaching to the converted and, and to, the, uh, to those who won't listen to us. I take only comfort in the fact that I, in my experience in every generation, there is a proportion of people who are ready to uh, receive the seed of the word and uh, do something with it. I've always thought that the, the actual numerical numbers of people capa- who got spiritual capacity was a sort of constant over time. Now, there were wonderful things like Freemasonry, whose ultimate aim was to inculcate some higher values in a very large number of people, um, in almost by the means of a social trick, um, but introduce them to the idea that the world of the rational thinking was a limitation and that there is a world beyond it, as you find in the third degree lecture. Um, and Freemasonry could have saved the world, I think, because it, by the end of the 19th century, it had spread to Turkey, parts of the Middle East, the Far East, certainly through North and South America, and, uh, and very large numbers of parts of Europe. And, and it was one of those ties that should have stopped things like the First World War, happening uh, or, and certainly the, the, the Nazi uh, catastrophe. Uh, Freemasons were very active against the slave trade in England before uh, we um, abolished the slave trade, long, 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 long before, let it be known, uh, Abraham Lincoln. And, uh, you know, I still think it could have a role, but I think as my work on that has shown that Freemasonry rather lost its way in the 20th century in 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 a large part of it but the spiritual message is recoverable but how we're going to what i'm trying to say is is there is some possibility of progress i I don't think we're we're in as dark a time as europe say in 700 a.d with vikings you know raping and pillaging the monasteries (laughs) of yorkshire you know and all of that um no, there is does seem to be a possibility of progress. Uh, there does, even in the temporal realm, even though the spiritual story is always that the eternal truth is always eternal, the eternal city is always glittering and always there. Um, but I would say a song with no one to hear it isn't worth hearing. And I, I think we all feel today that we have to enact these uh, visions uh, on earth with enormous care, and it, through through the way we bring up our children and the way we conduct our friendships and relationships, and uh, and and we must cling cling to the to the spirit. Um, this whole thing with uh, COVID, I mean, let's face it. As far as we can tell, as far as I know, and you may know more than I do, it's come about through uh, unclean practices, uh, uh, using animals in a way. The, for which you know were ill-advised and so on but it may also have been a, a perversion of germ warfare and the whole business of genetic uh, using genetics for as a as a, as a form of um, military power I wrote a novel about that the Babylon gene some years back uh, my only worry was I might give ideas to the, the wicked <laughs> that uh, well, I then found out about uh, that Putin had started a program to investigate uh, genetic mutation as a as a weapon of war. Oh dear! Presumably on the basis that if he didn't, somebody else would, or had already. Um, you know the wickedness. These these archons, these watchers, these uh, perverters. They, we've got them all about us. You know, <laughs> this is the tragedy. <laughs> The tragedy of Christianity is that the basic claim that I was acquainted with when I was um, converted to, to sort of an evangelical thing when I was 16 or 17 uh, didn't turn out to be true that the crucifixion wasn't a final act that um, removed the problem of Satan or this, some dark power from the world. Uh, it's simply almost exacerbated it. It's, it's, made it more, it's made it more vivid, but it's also made uh, many people more fanatical and mindless. The history of the Catholic Church is not an, is not an altogether inspiring one, as we know. No. They seem to have spent more time persecuting the lovers of Jesus than those who hate him.
2: Oh yeah, but uh, well, maybe Hans Jonas's uh, idea of the Gnostics is right, but I don't even think he's right. Uh, 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 Tobias, let let me explain my position, and I will include uh, hermeticism along with Christian Gnosticism. I think the key is not seeing the world as a prison or as uh, the Matrix or uh, Philip K. Dick's Black Iron Prison, although I think it is. But I think it's also seeing the divinity in the world. I think what did Rudolf Otto call it, the mysterium tremendo fascinante, that you can hold, you can be at awe, but you can also be completely terrified of the universe and the horror that is the universe. And I think both the Gnostic and the Hermetics were able to hold up the dark and the light simultaneously in front of them. And that's why their consciousness was so expanded. That's why they were such pacifists and philosophers, and they speculated, and they were more like, egalitarian. I think uh, that's what separates them from much of the world today, where there's either black or white or good and evil or this and that. Uh, what do you think about this? Do you, um, I, that's what I feel.
1: Miguel, I would say that's one of the most beautiful things I've heard in a very long time. So, oh, thank you. I, 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 I saw the light as you spoke there, and uh, it was beautiful. Yeah. I, 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 if, if it matters, I agree uh, totally with, with what you're saying.
2: Yeah, because even if you read the Corpus Hermeticum, Tobias, uh, there's a lot of dark stuff in there about uh, evil spirits and the body and that. But there's also an incredible joy. And you read a Gnostic text like the Secret Book of John, and it's Yaldabaoth is just, he's brutalizing humanity. And then it stops with this beautiful God is him where she wakes up people from their sleep and takes them up. Uh, So I think that people miss about these ancients. uh, And kind of going back to your book, the mind was more integrated in antediluvian times, at least symbolically.
1: I think I I, I come up with it. I mean, the historic data, the the records would suggest that these insights into citing God within the soul, uh, as opposed to outside or in idols or just as powers of the universe, uh, the physical universe, um, that they really only appear after about 500 AD in literature. And these speculations on the importance of the individual uh, they, they seem very late, so one might think that there'd been an evolution of, of consciousness that was only starting then. But I, I wonder and think that um, human beings actually hadn't changed that much between 6000 BC and late Roman antiquity. Uh, there's no evidence that I'm aware of that people's brains or their spiritual nature was particularly changed. So I, I can't help feeling that what we were seeing was the nature of the society was enabling something that already existed or was latent in people to come out. And if it was latent in people in 500 BC, in Greece, chi- uh, parts of China, uh, the Middle East, uh, North Africa, uh, if it was latent then, I'd, it must have been latent considerably earlier. So this the mythology of a perfected consciousness, i.e. there was no great division between the physical and the spiritual there was no fundamental conflict in human, e- human existence as being the province of a previous uh, unknown civilization uh, would seem to make perfectly speculative good sense and what we're then watching in the last six eight thousand years is not an evolution of consciousness but very much largely a devolution of consciousness And with some attempts to arrest the decline and uh, an actual and, and some are seriously arresting uh, elements of decline where we have the problem in the we children of the 20th century. You and I is that the, that the last war was settled with an atomic bomb. In other words, the greatest, Inflictic, infliction is that a word? Uh, the, the greatest perpetrating of, of human evil is perpetrated in the cause of the highest interest, and it, it, it to me it's it's uh, it's as troubling as it was to Einstein and to um, Heisenberg uh, and Robert Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer, um, that this power that is unleashed uh, the scientific power to to uh, unleash almighty hell on earth is done by good people for good reasons and this poses profound problems I think for our future uh, very profound I'm not sure we've really I'm not aware of any writer who's really got to grips with this the, the I think we I think nineteen forty five is one of those it's a bit like the second century the Gnostic period. It's one of those and isn't it odd that the, the, the Nagamadi library right,
2: yeah. is
1: at in December nineteen forty five only three months or so after after the dropping of the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh then you get this I think uh, I when I first read the Gnostic Gospels um if you don't read them academically you just take them in the feeling i had was of, of gold of some spiritual gold that's coming out that anyone can breathe in and and gain new life from i think you've had that experience i i definitely I think have, you, yes. you've been spiritually uh, renewed changed and and transformed by by something in these gospels which has a power that that the the conventional religious teaching that it does not have and uh, I saw it. I, I when I was doing the original TV series back in the eighties, I had a very clear vision. I remember sitting um, just by Port Meadow in Oxford, where I very close to where I used to live there. And one day, I, 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 I don't know. I just when I was making the TV series, I, I, I could see this light. Um, and after that, I got very involved with the Hermetic Philosophy Library in Amsterdam, which in my view, was unfortunately, inf- well, not unfortunately, it was also very fortunately, that it was influenced by a particular brand of Rosicrucianism, um, which had, I thought would turned a Gnostic universalism into a sort of Protestant sect, um, the Lectorium Rosicrucianum. But then you'd speak to people in that, and that's not the way they took it. So, well, there you go. Um, <laughs> what can you do?
2: But,
1: uh, oh, what can you do? <laughs> what, well, what I did was I made a TV series that 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 had a, a big following. The book was a number two bestseller in Britain, and we're still struggling with the output. But I noticed there've been no serious follow-ups, and all the TV programs I've seen on the Gnostics since then have had no spiritual quality at all in them. No. They haven't mm. grasped the they haven't grasped the dynamite in this message at all because the people making them simply can't see it. And, you know, what, what can you do then? That's always, you know, you either see it or you don't. And I remember p- people, my old enemies, you know, as it were spiritual enemies, when I was a student, were saying, you're yeah, like every other, you know, religious teacher. You always think if we don't share your view, it's because that we have a perceptual, you know, we're lacking in perception. And that's all you can say is, "Well, you see it, but we don't." And it's a very unanswerable thing to say to somebody, and it, it tends to turn you into an inward person who lives in the hope of meeting somebody who shares the vision. <laughs> you know, but there is there is a fundamental conflict between the spirit and the world, and and I didn't invent that. It's been it was spoken about by Jesus uh, copiously, according to the, certainly the Gospel of John, but it's in all the other Gospels. Ye are of the world; I am not of the world. You know, those who are of the world uh, can see this thing, and the peop- and, and and those, if you if you if you see your reflection in nature as the reflection of who you really are, you're never going to get this message.
2: Uh, beautifully said uh, for you, and well, Tobias, as always, thank you very much for coming on. Ayum Bite giving us your time and your gnosis and f- for coming this time and discussing your excellent book, The Lost Pillars of Enoch.
1: Always a pleasure, Miguel. Always a pleasure. And I hope you get over the snow tomorrow in Chicago.
2: <laughs> no, there's more coming. Oh, <laughs> We've
1: got the same here. One thing we have, we're not we are we are united in our weather at the moment.
2: <laughs> in complaining about the weather. <laughs> Well thank you, Tobias.
1: Bye Miguel. Bye, Vance. Bye. Bye bye.
2: And there you have it, my beloved truth seekers. As always, Tobias delivers at high octagnosis when he materializes at the Virtual Alexandria. In our second part, Tobias will get deeper and deeper into Hermetic philosophy and the lost pillars of Enoch. We'll go into archaeological evidence of the lost pillars of Enoch and more. Then we'll move into Hermes in the Renaissance period and also the Enlightenment period, including dealing with theosophy and the gnosis of William Blake, and much more. We need Hermetic philosophy more than ever in this age of Hermes. I think you know that by now. So become an AB Prime member or Patreon at Patreon for the full pillar. Only 6 dollars a lunar cycle, or whatever you want to pledge on Patreon. You won't find this Gnostic and Hermetic content or many of our guests anywhere in cyberspace or space. When you subscribe, it will cost you about a buck per episode. And that's a deal of many lifetimes. Membership includes full access to more than 14 years of quality interviews. It includes an invitation to the Inner Sanctum of Gnosis Facebook group and the Discord channel, where many past guests hang out there and I'm always there to answer your questions. Even support in the form of some shekels to PayPal or the USA Mail really, really helps. Don't forget I'm offering voiceover services if you need some audio for your projects. I also have the merch store and an Amazon wishlist as I always need equipment in this universe of entropy. Finding Hermes is live and so are our virtual Alexandria exclusive private meetings. That includes spiritual and mental exercises loyal to the ancient Gnostics and a whole lot of stimulating conversation on many heretical topics in a Q&A. I've already given lessons on Gnostic chants, psychedelics, vowel magic, astral ascent, mystical Eucharist, and much more. If you want to understand and experience Gnosticism in its full impact and liberating secrets, become an official citizen of the virtual Alexandria. You can do so many wonders. I just know it. I just know it. Including fully leveraging hermetic philosophy as it should be leveraged. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always.